This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is the Decibel Podcast with Chris Sinzak. And Aaron Camaro. Yes, it's that all important time once again. Oh, yeah, time for the Decibel Geek Podcast. My name is Aaron Camaro. I am a huge proponent of Southern girls. And my co host, he's the man who wants you to want him. It's Chris Sinzak. What's going on, brother? Well, I don't know if I want everyone to want me because um, some of you, I've seen the comments you leave. But yeah, good to see you. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a good one today, man. Talking about one of my favorite bands from the 70s. I know, Chris, you're always hot and cold on them a little bit, but I know a lot of our listeners love the hell out of them. I'm talking about Cheap Trick. Today, we're going to be talking about the best and the worst of 70s Cheap Trick, and we've got a perfect guest to do that with us. But of course, before we get to all that, we got to take care of the business. And what is the business of the Decibel Geek Podcast? You know it, and I know it, and everybody knows it. We want your reviews and recommendations. Great ways to do it is an Apple Podcast review, a Facebook recommendation, and you can also go on podchaser.com and leave reviews. We like those a lot, too. We don't get too many of them, but we like it when we do. So this week... We've got a couple of good ones. Nice, short, to the point. That's fine. We dig it. As long as all the stars are there and I count them, they are. So let's kick it off with this one. It's entitled Best in the Biz. It's an Apple Podcast review, and it's simply great show and great dudes. And that comes to us from Jimmy Rock Street via Apple Podcasts. I think I know that guy. Oh, do you? Yeah, I was just on his show, the... uh, Live and in color with Wolfie D talking about wrestling. If you guys, oh, was that him? Yeah, if you guys like wrestling, check out that show. I just did two back to back episodes of of that talking about wrestling with the legendary guy, the the veteran of the Ring Wars, the one and only Wolfie D. It was a lot of fun. So check that out. Awesome. And then that's not all. We also have a Facebook recommendation. This one comes to us from Chris DiCarlo. And he recommends the Decibel Geek podcast. He says, fantastic podcast. Both hosts are funny, relatable, and down-to-earth. Creative games, fun contests, and rock music news updates. They also showcase new bands and have interesting guests. That's great. Just the way we like them. It's got all the stars, Facebook recommendation, Apple podcast review. Thank you to Jimmy Street and Chris DiCarlo. Those are awesome. Yeah, thank you guys so much for keep them coming. Apple Podcast Review, Facebook recommendation. You go on to Podchaser and you know give us a rating. You can even you know review each episode in particular. So uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. That's yeah, pretty cool. I know one episode that's definitely worth five stars, and I know a lot of people loved it. Was last week's episode when Chris and I took a look into the future, way ahead to 2022. Oh yeah, we're already in 2022, and we're already getting great music. And so we wanted to take the time to look ahead and see what else is coming. You know, we messed up, dude. 
I did. We didn't even talk about Ace Fraley or Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper's working on two albums, and Ace Fraley's working on his metal album. That's true. Forgot. <laughs> I don't know. I have no excuse. No, me neither. But a lot of people really dug that episode. And when you like one of our episodes a lot and you want to tell your friends about it, the best way to help us get the word out about what we're doing here on the Decibel Geek Podcast is to go to our Facebook page or go to our Twitter account and find the post that says, this is the best and worst of Cheap Trick in the 70s, and then you share it from there. Retweet it, however you got to do it. When you do that, Chris gets the list Oh, yeah, he knows who's on there, and we're going to read them right here on the show because we love to give them the love and respect they deserve because they are Geeks of the Week. Yeah, Geeks of the Week this week are Adam Cox, Rockin' Ron Runyon, Jeffrey Mendenhall, Joseph Capone, Paul Korn, Brent Tibbetts, Mike Tyler, Kevin Williams, Darren Parkin, John Phillips, Shay Hargett, Shane Abair, Thunderfuck, and the Deadly Romantics, the greatest band name of all time. Yes. Keith Rockford, Simon Cat, Mike Parnell, Aaron Baker, Sit and Spin with Joe, Mark Alden Taylor, Mark and Deary BS, Sessions, Al Horta, Kristen Schimbeck, Doug Fox, Ernesto Aguiar, Hakon Bergstad, Mikhail Burrell, JJ McElhenney, Kevin's on Fire, Jeff Taylor, Twisted Kister, Eladio, Vet Halen, Focus on Metal Podcast, David Cathy, Scott Crouch, and as always, the Mooger Fooger. This time I stretched out the Mooger part. It seemed to sync up a little better. I think we got this down finally. We're going to get made fun of it either way. It doesn't matter. <laughs> of course we are. But thank you to everybody, including the Mooger Fooger that shared last week's episode. That's the way more people find out about the Decibel Geek podcast. That's what keeps us up in the numbers. That's what makes us be able to go to awesome possible guests and say, hey, look what we're doing over here. We got all kinds of friends that want to listen to you come talk to us. And it all helps out. So easy way to do it right there. And you get your name right on the show. You got to love that. So, without further ado, here we are. One of my favorite, favorite bands we're going to talk about today. So I'm extra excited about it. But that's not the only reason I'm excited. Because we got the man himself. He's back, finally, after all this time. He was the host of the Rock and or Roll podcast. I know a lot of our listeners also enjoyed the hell out of that show. He's been gone for a while, but he's been busy. He's going to tell us what he's been up to. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcasting world. Our friend, BJ Kahuna. <laughs> hey, guys. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Chris. What's going on, brother? Not much. Well, actually, a lot. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> a lot's going on. Yeah, I guess we should use your uh, your pen name, which is, you know, Brian J. Cramp, which is actually the the author name, you know, BJ Kahuna. Yeah, my author name. <laughs> yeah, BJ Kahuna goes back to uh, back to the Decibel Geek days. Yeah, you'll, um, yeah. you'll always but, uh, be BJ Kahuna to me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Well, yeah, but like you know, it's, it's cool to have you on as a guest now. I mean, we've been friends for several years, and and uh, you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up that, you know, the 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 germ of the idea that became Rock and Pod was this guy's. I mean, like he came up with the idea for what Rock and Pod became. So credit where credit is due there. Um, well, I just wanted to meet everybody. Right, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was really, you know, we had all this. We had this whole friend group, and the whole idea was, man, I wish we could all get together and hang out. You know. Yeah, and then I had to like you know turn into an insane person and run with it. But um, that's <laughs> yeah, a, that's a long story. But uh, but no, like it's cool to have you on like Rock and or Roll. And if you want to hear a funny episode, um, check out uh, Rock and or Roll, the No Shame episode that Aaron and I participated in. Yeah, yeah. 
and uh, where I uh, I listened to Little Miss Can't Be Wrong by the Spin Doctors a couple of weeks ago, and I still like it. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I still like it. <laughs> yeah. But you're not um, supposed to be sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not. No shame. Um, but yet, but like, uh, you know, BJ also co-hosts Cheap Talk with Trick Chat with Ken, Ken Mills, which is a great podcast on Cheap Trick. I've been working on this book. This band has no past for several years. And uh, it's finally coming out this year, right? Yeah, I just found out it might be delayed from summer to fall. But the book is essentially done. I'm not working on it anymore. <laughs> Unless, and I don't know, I don't think I have much longer that I could even add anything. But it's a pretty crazy feeling to not be spending all of my free time at the computer. Yeah, which is what I've been doing for months and months. It's just almost any free moment I had. So... But the book is insane. I mean, it's so in-depth. Like, the, before the band, what brought them all together, what they were doing beforehand. I mean, everything. It's so detailed. How did you find all this stuff? Oh, my God. It's just been an insane amount of research. You know, it's been probably almost five years that I've been working on it. And so it's hundreds and hundreds. It's hundreds of sources, you know, a lot on the Internet. You know, all the newspaper archives, there's several websites where you can search old newspapers, uh, buy magazines on eBay, um, YouTube interviews, podcast interviews, all kinds of interviews on the internet, just Googling all kinds of stuff and, um, books, you know, I got a bibliography in there. Um, and also I've interviewed more than 80 people. So yeah, it's just tons and tons of sources. uh, Years and years of work. So yeah, it shows man, 500 some pages worth. Well, yeah, the, that's that document. I don't know what, you know, that's not, the actual book won't be that long. Oh, okay. I don't really know what the exact layout will be of the of the finished book. I was going to say, I 500 really seen some pages yet. and half of it's the bibliography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's tons of sources. I mean, I've, I had to get, all, I got all the sources together because there's a lot of quotes in the book from Rick, Tom, and Robin because none of them would talk to me. But I managed to get tons and tons of quotes from them from, you know, just a crazy amount of sources. And so there's 25 pages. I have a 25-page document I sent to the publisher that was just all the sources just for the quotes from those three guys, basically. So and like so, putting this together, I mean, like, how did it feel when you finally turned it in? I mean, was it a giant weight off your shoulders? Yeah, it's it's been a crazy process just to get it to the finished point from it's so different now from what I originally submitted to the publisher. A huge part of this book is that cheap tricks, longtime manager, Ken Adamani has helped me out a lot. And I've developed a relationship with him for like four years now to the point where he would email me, email me 30 times a day, <laughs> sending me pictures. He's going through boxes in his garage and sending me pictures of, documents that he saved from the 60s and 70s you know wow and um and also i bunny carlos has been involved um you know the story goes all the way back to i interviewed a guy named jim charney who worked for epic records and he is still friends with ken adamani so jim charney linked me up with ken and that's like going back four years and i ended up having a meeting with ken and he got Bunny to come to the meeting. So I had like a more than three-hour-long meeting with Ken and Bunny wow. at Ken's Country Club. Nice. <laughs> and 
that was amazing. I recorded that a lot. Oh, there's plenty of stuff in the book that came out of that meeting. But, um, you know, Bunny kind of went radio silent on me after that meeting. I didn't really get uh, – Ken has always kept in touch and been involved. But all of a sudden when I got a publisher, Bunny Carlos answered every question I had. <laughs> so since I got the publisher, so much information has come in from Adam Annie and Bunny that it's – like I said, it's a it's a very different book from what I originally submitted to the publisher. My editor has edited it three times now, wow. and it. But now it's freaking done. There's nothing. I'm not. I just can't. It, you have to stop at some point, you know. Right. I mean. Yeah. Well, and so. you know, and what we're pushing today is you know the pre-orders. Like it's it, it, you mentioned, it got pushed from summer to fall, but it is going to come out in 2022. Um, yeah. But uh, so like you know the the name this band has no past. It's kind of an interesting choice to to title the book because obviously they do. Um, can you explain real quickly you know where that idea came from? Yeah, the you know the on the inner sleeve of their first album, one side of the inner sleeve is this biography that was written by a guy that worked for Epic Records named Eric Van Loosbader, who ended up being coming kind of a famous writer. He ended up taking over. Uh, who wrote Jace, the Jason Bourne books? Was it Robert Ludlum or somebody like that? When he died, Eric Van Lusbotter, like took over the series, writing that the Jason Bourne books. Wow. But he worked for Epic at the time, and he, and he wrote this fake biography of the band. Most of it is just nonsense, you know? <laughs> and that's the first se sentence of the biography, this band has no past. Wow. So, awesome. yeah, I love the idea. <laughs> Obviously, it's a it's an oxymoron or whatever because or it's an ironic title because the whole entire book is about their past right so it's a it's i i, I love the title and you know especially because of where it comes from and everything it's the book is the opposite of the title right right totally. <laughs> so yeah. well it deals in irony which is you know cheap yeah. tricks stock and trade right yeah exactly <laughs> and then i came up with that subtitle how cheap trick became cheap trick because i knew it could be printed on the book to kind of look like the logo mm -hmm. that was the whole idea behind that it works pretty great on the cover because it kind of approximates the logo by saying how cheap trick and then below that became cheap trick and then you get the two cheap tricks kind of oh, offset yeah. and it just kind of looks like the look it gives nice. you the impression of the logo you know i like that yeah so uh so like we you know obviously you know the book's not out yet but we want to encourage you to to pre-order the best place to pre-order i mean i went through the the quarto group uh website um, but it's all it's on Amazon. It's on all the major retailers, right? Yeah, Barnes and Noble. You can even buy it on Target.com. But Amazon is a good place because the publisher is actually tracking the pre-orders on there. And apparently, depending on how many pre-orders it gets, that will affect how many Amazon stocks and stuff like that. So, but yeah, if you if you don't like Amazon, there's lots of other places you can pre-order it too. Right yeah, on. Well, I ordered it from Amazon this afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Books called This Band Has No Past is written by BJ, our awesome friend. It's available now for pre-order. Go ahead and get it, sign it up, and get it sent right to your door. It's going to be awesome. So now, by proxy of this book, BJ has become the most knowledgeable person we know about Cheap Trick in the 70s. So therefore, there's nobody better to talk about those four first epic albums by this band than BJ. 
<laughs> so we're going to go down the list. We're going to talk about all these albums. I know, Chris, what, I mean, aren't you a Cheap Trick fan? I always thought for you, the kind of music you love, you should love Cheap Trick. But then you've always kind of come off as meh with Cheap Trick. I don't understand. Yeah, well, and it's one of those bands where it seems like a home run for me that I would be like a diehard Cheap Trick fan. But I, I into this day, and, you know, and I, I went through the catalog again today. And, um, you know, I, th- I mean, what I like, I really like a lot, but I just can't a hundred percent dive in to be a diehard. So, um, I'll probably make some people angry, including both of you yeah. with some <laughs> of my, uh, some of my takes today. And I know cheap trick diehards are going to be listening to this going, how the fuck can he not like that song? But, um, I don't know. I just, they're, they're power pop and I love power pop. You know, I love the raspberries. I love several bands like that, but um, but now there's certain things about them that, you know, and it might be production, it might be certain songs, but let me just state that Rick Nielsen's an amazing guitarist, Robin Zander's an ama- amazing vocalist, probably one of the greatest vocalists in rock history. Uh, Bunny has a, you know, a signature drum sound. So like all the pieces are there, um, but like full albums, you know, I don't know. There, I ha- I'll have certain takes on these things, but um I've did I've dove in a little bit more, you know, we we got kind of a, a galley proof uh PDF from from BJ about this book and it's been interesting to read uh you know some of the backstory on the band but but I don't know, you know, maybe I'll become more of a cheap trick fan as we go through this. I'm betting you will. Now for me, when I was a little kid it was all about Kiss. That was all I really knew, that's all I really cared about. And then one time I went to a yard sale well, I guess back where I'm from, they call them rummage sales. BJ knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I found the album Heaven Tonight by Cheap Trick. And I'd never heard of it before, but they were really cheap. And I think I maybe got my aunt to buy it for me or something and brought it home and listened to it. And, man, there's songs on there that just blew me away. And then, because it was funny for me, because I grew up in an era of Cheap Trick in the 80s, which wasn't nearly as cool as what we're going to be talking about today. But when I found that album, I was like, wow, there is something to this cheap trick. And then as I got older and got to discover more of that early 70s stuff, man, I love most of it. Like, the songs I love by Cheap Trick, man, I freaking love those songs. And there's some that are a little less good on these first four albums. But if you're talking about a run of four albums, four kick-ass, awesome albums, where most of it is all really good... You got to talk about the run of Cheap Trick in the seventies, I think. Well, and let me let me interject real fast because if we're going into like origin story of how we became aware of the band, I I'm like you, Eric. I got I came on way late, so I think the first exposure I had to Cheap Trick was the Flame, and I know that Cheap Trick fans hate that song, including the band. Um, but I remember that song was a giant hit. My dad liked it. Like and my dad I think my dad liked Cheap Trick in the seventies and I remember the flame became a hit and my dad was like, Oh, this band's really good, you should check them out. And then the video for Don't Be Cruel came out after that. And I remember they had a bit of a resurgence during that time. And I liked Don't yeah. Be Cruel. I thought it was a cool cover of that song. But I didn't dive into the Cheap Trick catalog, I'm gonna say until like the late eighties, early nineties. So I was very late coming to the to the party for this band. Well, sure, but we were all kids yeah, when the flame I, I came mean, out. Yeah, I was like tw- I, I was like ten years old when that album that song. Sure, came out. the first Same. time I saw Cheap Trick was Woke Up with a Monster Tour. You wow. Know? 
and yeah, that might the flame might have been the first time I ever heard them. I don't know. Weirdly enough, when I was a kid, I don't remember Cheap Trick being on Milwaukee radio a whole lot. So I didn't, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't know from Cheap Trick except maybe I want you to want me in Dream Police, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so when did you dive in and become like a diehard fan of the band? Yeah, like in the '90s when I was in college, it was it was a thing where. I did have, I used to buy records at my local record store for a buck when I was a kid, even though I didn't even have a record player. And I think I did have like a few in color Budokan, maybe Dream Police, just in my collection because I bought them at the local record store for a buck. But it wasn't until I heard the first album that I realized how amazing the band really was and that I really became obsessed, you know, when I started getting the rest of the the catalog but it's really the first album that blew my mind that just might be my favorite album of all time so yeah when i heard that when i was in college that was when i you know and i had a couple of friends in college who were older than me who were both huge cheap trick fans uh still friends of mine my friend craig that i met in madison i've probably seen cheap trick with him like 20 times nice and um I even he's I even put his name in the book because he interviewed Rick Nielsen. He wrote for a local Madison paper called Sights and Sounds, which actually um, Paul Gargano worked for that paper back then. Oh, yeah. That's and cool. uh, yeah, so Craig interviewed Rick for that paper and I still have the paper. It was just like a free local Madison thing, you know? Yeah. So I actually use a quote from that so I can put Craig's name in the book. Man, that's <laughs> but, cool yeah. as hell. So yeah, it helped that I had these two older friends who were huge Cheap Trick fans as well at the same time I was getting into them. So um, well, so, yeah, it was my college years where I became obsessed, you know. Well, and you mentioned in the book, you know, that it, it's, it's an interesting story because they, you know, the way that they didn't like, you know, defect to the to the West Coast or the East Coast. You know, they, they, they slugged it out through the Midwest and... You know, they probably could have. The you know, it might have been a more of a fast track to fame had they gone to L.A. or New York, but they really built it up through the grassroots level, and that's an interesting thing when you think about it, especially during that time, because they probably would have had more exposure going elsewhere. Do you do you know? I mean, like, and it's probably in the book, I'm sure, but is there a particular reason why they didn't relocate at that time? Well, they were making they were making a good living. By the time it was the mid seventies, you know, all four guys been in bands since they were teenagers. You know, they all had more than a decade of just they had made it their lives. You know, I talk in the book about how when the baby boom collided with the British invasion, everybody was in a band, you know. There were so many bands in the late sixties, everybody wanted to be the Beatles. But by the time you get to the mid-70s, the only four guys that had stuck it out from all of those bands, because all four guys had their own bands in the 60s, you know, they were all individually in different bands. But by the time you get to the mid-70s, these are the four guys that made it their life, you know, that kept, that stuck with it <laughs> through thick and thin, you know, laid it all on the line, didn't really have a plan B. And there they were, and they were making a good living in the Midwest, just playing Every night, you know, they would play Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They would every night they'd be in a different town in Illinois or Wisconsin at some bar. But, you know, they're making 
a few hundred bucks a, a man by the time they're really popular in 75, 76, 77, they're making a few hundred bucks a night, you know? So they were, they were doing well for themselves. And, but yeah, like I say in the book, they could have gone to CBGB's or the sunset strip and they could have fit in on yeah. either one in either one of those scenes, which is pretty interesting if you think about it. But yeah, they just uh, kept doing what they were doing and they had a great manager who, you know, anybody who reads the book will learn that, you know, they were flirting with the record companies for a couple of years before they got signed and almost they had lots of uh, record label interest, even though they were in the Midwest, you know, the yeah. people from the labels would fly to Illinois to come see them. So they made it work and they had a big following. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so Jack Douglas kind of, I mean, would you say it's fair to say that Jack Douglas kind of discovered them? Well, yeah, that, that word discovered, everybody kind of knows what that means, but yeah, uh, Ken Adamani, their manager, got in touch with Jack Douglas and sent him tapes and got him interested. And then, yeah, when he came to see them uh, in Waukesha, Wisconsin, which I mentioned in my introduction, that I was literally across the street that night, but I was two years old. But my parents lived in a house that was literally across the street from the Sunset Bowl parking lot. And um, that's where Jack Douglas came to see them. And yeah, then he called up Tom Werman, who was an A&R guy at Epic at the time. Uh, he had already produced Nugent and stuff, but he was working A&R. Nugent flew to see them. and Yeah, but it was Jack Douglas that really got the ball rolling. <laughs> and then other labels, once Epic was sniffing around, and the other labels started sniffing around. and So yeah, but yeah, Jack Douglas, he was the person that set things in motion that got them signed to epic for sure yeah i suppose once his name is tied to it then everybody starts looking at it like it's something serious yeah exactly yeah he loved the band and he wanted to produce them so yeah if you've got that if you've got uh a producer's just having a lot of success you know with aerosmith toys in the attic was a huge hit at the time you know by the time he's interested actually they were working on rocks when he came to see cheap trick they were in the middle of recording rocks at the time. So nice. Love that album. So that, you know, he, and he produces the first album, the self-titled album comes out, um, February 3rd, 1977. Can you, and BJ, please explain to me what is with the side a and side one issue here. That was the record label that the, actually, according to, to, as far as bunny Carlos and Ken Adam, and he told me that wasn't even the band's idea, you know, Cheap Trick had that hilarious image with the two nerds and the two pretty boys. And the, the record label got into it. If you look at all the marketing and promotion they did for the band, they really played that up yeah. and they liked it. They liked the sense of humor that they had going on. So that was just kind of, you know, along the lines of that, of the kind of sense of humor of the band. It was like, we've got a side A and a side one. But it ended up causing a lot of confusion and actually ended up with everybody thinking the second side was the first side, you know, for right. 20 years. So yeah, it kind of backfired, but it was just, it was just supposed to be funny, you know, because the band was funny. There was a lot yeah. of sense of humor there. Yeah. But I mean, but yeah, but like Hello Kitties, that's an album opener. <laughs> it's the second, yeah. it's the first song on side B. So it's like, it's, you know, it, it's almost reversed of what it probably was intended to be. 
So we're going to do the best. Basically, I hate to say best and worst, but it's basically our our favorite slash least favorite track on each album. And um, BJ already made it clear to me that he's going to agonize over this, so yeah. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but we did this with Mark Striegel with Judas Priest, so we're going to do it with you for Cheap Trick in the 70s. Um, and, you know, you're the guest, so you get the honors. What is your favorite and least favorite song on the on the debut album? <laughs> yeah, um, I love every song on the debut album, for one thing. So picking a worst one is, is probably even hard. Well, I guess not. I could say there's a five-way tie for the best, honestly. But if, <laughs> I, if I'm forced to pick one... If I'm forced to pick one, then I guess I go with He's a Whore. But, you know, Hot Love, Hello Kitties, there's a lot of competition. But He's a Whore, you know, absolute classic in every way. So the story goes, I think I'll take it for a ride. With this money bank by my side, a chigolo is the only way to go. And so I show my face. For the worst, I think, I believe that Ralph Vieira made me do this <laughs> at, one, at one point. And um, if I remember right, I might have said Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace just because Rick Nielsen didn't write it. But I absolutely love that song. And they they made it a cheap trick song. You know, anybody who's heard the Terry Reid version, it's good. But, you know, the cheap trick song is so much better. The cheap trick version. Mm-hmm. So if I have to pick a worst, I guess I would say Cry Cry, but I do love that song. I love the hook on the chorus, but the verse isn't the best. So Cry Cry for the worst, but right. but I love it. <laughs> Aaron, what about you? It's really hard to pick off of this one because I got to imagine, because like BJ said, these guys were together for quite a while before this album was even recorded. So this is basically the greatest hits of Cheap Trick you know, 1974 to 19, you know, when, when did they very first really start recording stuff? Rick Nielsen started writing actual cheap trick songs, probably not till 74, yeah. but yeah, by the time they made the first album, they had like 50 songs, but you know, what's weird is Jack Douglas picked the songs. Yeah. Mm. And it's funny to say it. It's a greatest hits. I mean, they had, I want you to want me surrender and dream police. <laughs> When they made the first album, That's so it could have crazy. been greatest hits. Yeah, wow, but. that is crazy. For me, for the best song, I agree with BJ one hundred percent. It's he's a whore. It's everything I love about rock and roll. It's I listen to that song and I go, oh. That's where all my favorite bands come from. You know, all the bands, all the stuff that I listened to growing up in the eighties and nineties. It all basically comes from that song. I hear so much Motley Crue in that. You know, that's like that's what those guys had to have been listening to when they were thinking about, you know, what they wanted to sound like. Like Motley Crue should have covered that song somewhere along the way. 
because that's what it sounds like. For the worst one, man, it's pretty hard to pick, man. There's some songs on here I really love. I mean, Hot Love is amazing, one of my favorites. Hello Kitty's Taxman, Mr. Thief is one of my favorites. I was kind of looking at Love and Money is one of my favorites, but his worst, I got to say, probably Mandicello, or however you say it. Mandocello. Mandocello. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it because I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> it's That's the instrument that Rick wrote it on. Yeah. It's a weird instrument, yeah. He still breaks it out live, too. Um, yeah. He has an electric one that uh, yeah. the hammer made him, yeah. Uh, for me, I mean, I my favorite, um, it's you know, and this is where I'm going to piss off people for the first time today. I don't think this is their best album of the 70s. Honestly, I'll take the other 70s albums over this one, personally. Um, I do like several songs on it. It's going to be a clean sweep as far as the best, because He's a Whore is one of the best songs they ever did, yeah. in my opinion. Uh, it's just... It's pop rock perfection, I think. And that's a good point, Aaron. Molly Crew would have done a great job covering this song. It it would have fit totally into that era. Um, And I'll agree with BJ. Cry Cry is my least favorite song on this record. I do not like it. I've never liked it. I think it's kind of a dirgy song, and I've never thought it was any good. Um, But the other songs, I like Speak Now, Forever Hold Your Peace. I know it's a cover. But I like I like the ballad of TV violence. I like hot love, and I and I love O Candy. I've even played it on the show in the past, um, even though it's a it's a very dark subject matter when you get down to the story behind it. But uh, I you know I like this song. Mandocello's okay. Um, I don't hate it or anything. But um, Taxman, Mister Thief, I you know this is maybe this is my main gripe with Cheap Trick. Well, the, where there's certain songs like this one where it's like if I want to hear the Beatles, I'll listen to the Beatles. Um, and maybe, you know, and I get that, that they're wearing their influences on their sleeve, but sometimes I think they go too far into Beatles land. Uh, and I, th- and I don't like LO kitties. I've never liked that song. I oh my just, God. <laughs> I, 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 I know. Go ahead and get mad, but I just, I don't like it. I've never liked it, but, um, but I agree with you on your, your favorite and least favorite. I, I'm totally in line with you on that. Yeah. Do you guys want to hear a quick, he's a whore thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. Ken Adamani actually last week i went and met him and he gave me a bunch of old stuff so i could take it and scan it and then i brought it back to him on tuesday actually one of the things he gave me is it's a piece of paper from a yellow legal pad so rick nielsen would write lyrics he would call ken adamy's office and ken adamany's secretary would take them down in shorthand and then type them up so he gave me this piece from a yellow legal pad. It's it's shorthand, a bunch of shorthand symbols. Yeah. At the top, it said, he's a whore. And then down in the middle of all the shorthand symbols, there's just one word, gigolo. Because <laughs> there's no shorthand symbol for gigolo. Oh, but wow. this is the this is what Ken Adamani's secretary took down in shorthand so she could type up Rick's lyrics when he wrote, he's a whore. And I actually had wow. that in my house, and I scanned it. I don't know if it'll make it in the book, but it's pretty awesome. That is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. There must have been so many moments, you know, putting this book together. I know it's a lot of work and all, but as a diehard Cheap Trick fan, there must have been a lot of pinch-me moments, you know, oh, putting yeah. this thing together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had a thing that Ken let me scan that is this uh, four-page questionnaire that Rick Nielsen filled out for Ken. 
and the date on it is March 1st, 1967. And it's the actual paper that Rick wrote on with a ballpoint pen in 1967 that Ken still has. It's like in mint condition, too. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's some archaeology stuff there. Yeah, yeah. So let's move on to uh, In Color that comes out September of 1977, and that's when they make the switch to Tom Worman. Um, can you briefly tell us like the story of the switch? from? Why does it go from Jack to Tom Worman, who kind of takes over duties from that point on? <clears throat> well, Jack Douglas was working on Draw the Line, and the quote I have in my book is he says, that's when the drugs weren't working. <laughs> so they took like <laughs> they took like a year to make draw the line and that's why he couldn't do the second cheap trick album basically it's because he was stuck working with aerosmith so and yeah tom Werman actually you know he was he was the first guy from the label to see cheap trick after jack douglas he flew to see them douglas saw them in march and Werman saw them in may of 76 and he was he loved the band and um he actually was supposed to produce eddie money that's like i guess he hadn't signed anything but that's what he was gonna do and he dropped out of producing i guess it must have been the first eddie money i'm not sure which eddie money album uh bruce botnick ended up producing it but that's what orman was going to do until the cheap trick thing came up and then he asked if he could do that instead so yeah ends up being an awesome album man one of my favorites got some of my very favorite cheap trick songs on it yeah, God, there's there's so many good songs on this one. So, well, so BJ, guest of honor, you get to go first. Um, favorite and least favorite on In Color. The picking the worst wasn't that hard, but picking the best is was not is not easy again. But I guess I have to go with Big Eyes, which the riff and everything about the song is amazing. some there's some real competition on here for the best oh, yeah. uh the worst i would go with your all talk which i like i like but it's definitely my least favorite on this album and that and they actually recorded that for the first album you know they had most of the songs on this album that they could have used on the first album big eyes actually uh rick tells a story about writing big eyes while they were in the studio recording the first album but they actually recorded a version of your all talk for the first record yeah you talk about that because i got a cd that's got like a 1975 version of southern girls on it yeah it's a little yeah that was when they went to ardent studios in memphis and they did they recorded four songs in november of 75 yeah oh wow i didn't know they ever recorded there yeah it was uh butch stone who managed black oak arkansas uh was like his big thing but he was interested in the band, and he he actually uh, – that's why they went down to Ardent to record was was because of Butch Stone. So. Wow. Even more cool history for Ardent Studios. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, I talked to Jody Stevens and he told me that he sent the tapes to the band at some point. So they, they actually, yeah, that's why they have them because they were looking for them. I, I don't know, in the 90s or something. Yeah, because it came out as bonus tracks when they re, uh, remastered their CDs and came out that came out from this era. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I think what, one of them's on the box was on the box set, and then they put the other three on that on one of those um, epic archives they call them those CDs. Man, BJ, I can't believe you picked your all talk for the worst. That was I was looking at that as one of my <laughs> favorites. Oh yeah, that's one of my favorite. I like it, songs. but yeah, it's, it's definitely it, my least champs. favorite on there. So I'm looking yeah. at this, and yeah, I mean, there's so many good songs. I love Big Eyes. There's that's one of the greatest songs. I want you to want me is kind of weak for this version. You know, that's why when you hear it on the radio, it's always the live version. Always like hello there, man. There's so many good songs. I guess I gotta go with Southern Girls. I just love that song so much. I'm gonna go with "So Good to See You." I almost said "Downed," but "Downed" has got that oh. awesome guitar bass breakdown in the middle of the song that just rules. So, by I guess having to pick one, I'm gonna go with "So Good to See You" is the worst. Okay. Well, it's interesting. "Southern Girls" for the longest time was my favorite song on this record. Um, just because I just it, it's one of those different songs for the, like that song stands out in their whole catalog. Um, and I still love it, but I mean, just for the, and it's funny that you mentioned down to almost made your worst of list. I think Robin's vocal alone makes down the best song on the record to me. You know the guitar part's great and all, but it's just a great showcase for Robin Zander's vocals. And I love the way the melody on that song is amazing. 
Uh, my other favorites are Hello There, Big Eyes, obviously. We've played that on the show in the past. Um, Southern Girls, Come On, Come On is a great song. Yeah, uh, Come On, Come On is probably my number two, but I could go with Downed. Yeah. yeah for Downed favorite, is yeah. just, the melody of that song is just amazing. And for worst, I'm going to pick I Want You to Want Me. Um, not that it's a bad song, obviously, but it sounds like a fucking hoedown or something. It sounds countryish <laughs> on on this. Yeah. And I love Tom Werman, and I do think he was the right producer for them. Um, I don't necessarily like what Tom did with Motley Crue and other like the metal bands that he worked on in the 80s. I like some of it, but I think he was the right producer at the right time for Cheap Trick. But God, it's uh, the I want you to want me on this record is horrific. I do not like it, and um, that's why you never hear it on the radio because even radio stations agree they never play this version of it. It just sounds so goofy to me. Um, but but Downed is definitely my favorite on this record. I think one underrated song on here that's really good that nobody really ever talks about is Oh Caroline. That is a good one. And when yeah, I hear that, great. then it's like you know how. The Beatles begat Cheap Trick, and then Cheap Trick would begat Enough's Enough. It's a song like that that goes, oh, yeah, that's Enough's Enough was totally listening to Cheap Trick when they were finding their style. That was one of the newest. I think Oh, Caroline and Clock Strikes 10 were the two that were most recently written, you know, for the album. Yeah, either way, two back-to-back amazing albums there with more, way more good songs and bad ones. Uh, you know, and, and both albums released in the same year. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it's something you, you'll never see that again. And then, you know, then you go into 78, April of 78 is when Heaven and Night comes out, also produced by Tom Warman. So, I mean, <laughs> I think this is probably my favorite Cheap Trick record of all of them because um, there's just so many amazing songs on it. But uh, BJ, you're a guest of honor. So good luck picking a best and worst of on this no one. Kidding. You're up. Yeah, again, picking the best song is not easy. I have to go with On Top of the World because it's just insanely brilliant. So, you know, Alveder's Ain is also one of their best and one of my favorites. So it's hard not to pick that. But On Top of the World is just incredible. For Worst Song is pretty easy for me. It's on the radio, which it's not a bad song, but it doesn't sound much like a cheap trick song to me. It definitely feels like filler. So, yeah, I would have to go with because I don't count Eau Claire as a song. That's not really uh, a song. Yeah, so I would have to go with on the on the radio as the worst. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking the same thing about the worst. It's kind of looking at How Are You isn't really one of my favorites, but on the radio is just kind of, 
I don't know. It don't really do nothing. Like, if I'm going to pick the best songs off this, that one's probably going to be at the bottom, I think. As far as best, oh, man. On Top of the World was one I fought with because I love that song so much. I always love California Man. That's such a good jam and tune. High Roller is amazing. I mean, this album, Stiff Competition, oh, man, so good. But one song that when I got my iPod on shuffle and I'm in the car, I got to crank it up whenever this comes on. It's off Sane. And it's just got such a good chugging. It's it's like heavy metal cheap trick almost, you know. It, it really jams, you know. And it's one of those songs that you can't listen to it quietly. You got to crank it up. And if you've ever done that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. favorite cheap trick song but again you know this whole album is so good there's so many great songs on it and this is the one that everybody knows and loves is surrenders on here but for me all day off eater saying and they had off eater saying when they made the first album and how how well would it have fit on the first album too it's crazy they had that breadth of material just to yeah. start with. That's crazy. Well, you think about yeah. how long they'd been writing songs before they even got to get into a studio to record an actual full-length studio album. Like yeah. all yeah. these albums are Cheap Trick's greatest hits because they've had the songs already forever, playing them live all the time. Yeah, and for me, I mean, I, the the best song on this album for me is it, it never changes. It's always going to be High Roller. I love the melody of this song. I love Robin's vocals. I love the guitar parts. I love everything about this song. I think it's 
it's probably top five of all of Cheap Trick stuff in their entire catalog. Um, I'll agree with uh, BJ about on the radio. I, and, but I will also disagree with you. You say it's not a bad song. I say it is a bad song. I think it's awful, <laughs> um, especially that you know having the DJ cut in halfway through the song. And I know yeah. Bunny agrees with me because he's stated in interviews that he hates this song and he thinks it was just deployed to get on the radio. Yeah. Um, I, I don't like this. I think it's terrible, but I mean, other great stuff. I mean, if we're going on the best riffs of the record, stiff competition wins. I mean, that's, yeah. that's one of the best rock riffs they ever did. Of of Zane is great. Listen to the anthrax cover of it. It's a great cover. Um, and then surrender. I mean, I mean, it's hard for me not to pick surrender as my favorite because it's just classic. Um, it's one of those, you never turn off when that comes on the radio, but High Roller is kind of a, a diamond in the rough. You never hear anybody really brag about it, but I've played it on the show before. I think it's just an amazing pop rock song. Uh, but yeah, Heaven and Night, I don't think any album in Cheap Tricks catalog tops this record. That's my favorite album in the whole catalog. I think it. there's, there's some issues with on the second side for me. A little bit of filler. But I mean, yeah, the first side... It's just crushing, you know? It's crazy. But, I mean, even Taking Me Back, is, is it's a filler song, but it's killer filler. Yeah, killer fillers. Good way to put it. How Are You is just, I Want You to Want Me Part 2, basically. Yeah. So I, that's kind of problematic. But, but it comes yeah. off better as a studio track. And then in like the title track, which is odd, because the title track's kind of dark-sounding. Yeah, it's you know, trippy it's, song. Yeah. It's, uh, you would think it would be kind of an up-tempo number by the title, but it's it's very right. dirgy and dark. Um, but I I like it for that. It's got a it's got a, a certain mood to it. And then Eau Claire, I mean that's Sabbath. that's just a minute and ten seconds. So it's just an add-on piece. It's like Rock and Roll Party on Destroyer because I had to put Kiss into the episode somewhere, guys. Yeah, Eau Claire is actually a piece of music they used to use as like an intro, and that's kind of what Hello There came out of because they wanted something at the beginning where the sound guy could, you know, make his adjustments. So yeah. they used to do Eau Claire at, at, for that until they, until Rick wrote hello there. And then they, so that's where Eau Claire actually comes from. Hmm. It's just like a little instrumental intro, intro, intro for the shows yeah. that they had. Well, and I mean, and you know, BJ and Aaron, you both know that Eau Claire, E-A-U, yeah. Claire <laughs> is a town in Wisconsin. That's right. I've um, been there a few times. Which, yeah. Which I and knew. it's just, I, I knew because my dad grew up. My dad grew up in Milwaukee, and right. the Milwaukee Braves baseball team at the time had a farm team in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. That's the only reason I know about it. Well, another weird thing is Rick had a song called Eau Claire, which he talked. About, he talks about in uh, their Rolling Stone interview when they were on the cover of Rolling Stone. I think he talks about it in there. At this time, he had that song, and they ended up recording it for their album Rockford later. Yeah. Like so he had idea. a different song called Eau Claire. And of course, you've got Oh Candy, Oh Caroline, Oh Claire. You've got that. <laughs> that so the o you can see what they're doing yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. So then we go. Um, and I wanted to throw this in there because, you know, we're only covering five studio records. So then Cheap Trick of Budokan seven, comes out in 78, produced by the band. Um, you know, this will be quick. But, um, you know, BJ, what's your your favorite and least favorite on this one? Yeah, this is a weird dynamic because, you know, most of these songs are on the records we were just talking about. I pick, you know, Lookout as my favorite because, it, you know, it's an, it's a, it's not new because they had it for the first album. <laughs> like, right. I pick a lot of the other stuff. 
it, you know, the, the version, this is the only version we get. So, um, that's my favorite. And my least favorite is need your love, which I'm not a huge fan of that's on. Yeah. I actually picked need your love is my favorite. Really? Oh yeah. yeah Cause I love that song. <laughs> I like the studio version. And then the live version is this like epic 10 minute thing. And I think it's just awesome. I guess my least favorite is probably, uh, ain't that a shame. Hmm. Yeah, I could see I could see going with that just because it's a cover, yeah. but it's a lot of fun. It's fun, but it's kind of a weird cover, too. You know, it's funny. Yeah. I was thinking about this, like these first albums already before we even get to the live one. It's like for Cheap Trick, there's no such thing as a sophomore slump because like you always hear the story of the band's first album. And so they bring all the songs they've been playing for the last year. And then, you know, the story, the, you know, producer picks the songs, they go and they record them. Then it comes time for album two, and it's like, oh, shit, now what? Cheap Trick doesn't have that problem because they've got a million songs before they even record the first album. they got enough to carry them through for, I mean, all the way through the 70s, pretty much, it seems like. Yeah, for a lot of it. Pretty yeah, cool. it's a, this is going to show the dichotomy between Aaron Camaro and me. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> It's a, it's just so funny how our tastes are so different on certain things. So like to me, I think Need Your Love is absolutely the worst song on this record. I don't think it's a great song. I never have. Um I love it. It's got such an awesome groove to it. And Ain't That a Shame almost made my best uh list for the I love their cover of this song. I think it's especially with the the whole drum build up that Bunny does at the beginning. Yeah. Um Lookout almost made my favorite list just cuz it's like it, it got left off the first record but it's so good. Yeah, it's great. And, and then they never uh recorded a studio version of that? Yeah, it, yeah. it's on the bonus tracks oh, for okay. the first record. Okay, cool. Yeah, you know, it's those bonus tracks unfortunately there's not like really any overdubs. I'm sure they would have put some background vocals and stuff yeah. on there and made it's it better raw. if they would have finished yeah. it but yeah and then you know surrender almost made it um but i'm gonna be weird i'm gonna go with i want you to want me i know it's been played to death on the radio and i know everyone's sick of it that's a cheap trick diehard that's listening to this i will never ever turn this off if it comes on the radio and it's just especially if you compare it to the studio counterpart it is so damn good yeah. and it's it's one of the greatest rock songs ever written, and I think Cheap Trick deserves the uh, the credit for that. So, yeah, I'll go with I Want You to Want Me for my favorite and Need Your Love for my least favorite. Hmm. Well, all together, one of the greatest live albums of all time. Yeah. yeah. But now, did, yeah. This, did this get recorded when they were opening for Kiss, or was it a different tour? No, it was, uh, it was they just did like nine shows in Japan on their yeah. own because oh, okay. they, they had a pretty big... They, they were pretty i mean they didn't realize of course everybody knows the stories they didn't realize how popular they were when they were, went over there actually it was a japanese promoter that you know got them to come over because i guess he knew that they were going to sell a lot of tickets and luckily yeah luckily they recorded it because that what this wasn't like everybody knows it wasn't like a plan that they had to, to come out with this live album uh, now tell me this and this is just me being a novice at cheap trick i guess when they do i want you to want me like didn't i didn't i didn't you see you crying and like after every verse the audience is saying something back what are they saying they're saying cry 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 something like that okay which they just made up like i mean that i have a quote in the book where robin says 
they almost stopped playing <laughs> when the crowd was doing that because they didn't know what was happening, you know? Yeah. So it was just a weird phenomenon that was hap- that was going on with the fans. I don't know. It's Yeah. Well, and, uh, of course, they intro the band with the all right or whatever. And um, it's, it sounds like a kiss intro on the on the intro to the album. I think the fans are like kind of doing an echo of crying, 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 you know, yeah. they're I think there's kind of an ec- they're they're re- recreating an echo effect, wow. but it's yeah. crazy that they were all doing it together, you know. But it's almost like with Kiss with Rock and Roll All Night, like the studio version's fine and all, but the the live version of that and this song is just so much bigger and better than than the the studio version. Yeah, you have to give Tom Werman some credit though, because if you listen to the song before. In the way they performed it live before, in color and after, it's definitely influenced by Tom Werman's arrangement. You know, gotcha. So this, you know, they, they that's the song needed some work. It did. I mean, a lot of people don't agree with what Tom Werman did with it. I kind of like it personally, and I kind of see where he was coming from because of the way this. I don't know if you listen to the version they recorded for the first album or some of the early live versions, they needed to figure out some way to arrange the song. So I think Worman did help them figure that out. And I think what you hear on Budokan, you know, you have to give Tom Worman a little bit of credit for helping arrange it and helping give it more of a bounce, you know? Yeah. Gotcha. For sure. All right. So then we, uh, we finish off the decade with dream police comes out in 1979. Um, you know, the, a hell of a way to end off the uh, the decade, and uh, you know, Kiss went disco, and Cheap Trick just kept being Cheap Trick. So, uh, <laughs> produced by Tom Worman, also um, a lot of great songs on this record. You know, BJ, uh, what are your thoughts on this record, and what's your favorite and least favorite of this record? It's a great album. My favorite on here is pretty easy. It's Way of the World, which is a complete masterpiece. everything about it and for worst i could have gone just gone with need your love again but now this is you know this is as a result of having seen the band live about 50 times but i really never want to hear i know what i want again i don't really want to ever hear that song again so um that's what i picked as the worst gotcha all right well i mean this is another one that's just loaded with amazing songs. And like I said at the beginning, the cheap trick that I love, I love a lot. And this album is just loaded full of songs that I oh, I could never get enough of. If I'm picking the worst, yeah, I guess I'm going to go with the Tom Peterson song too. I know what I want. It's, I guess, just my least favorite on the album. And it's not even a bad song. But no. it's definitely out of place. And it's probably only because the other dude's singing it and it's not Robin Zander's voice. 
As far as my favorite song on here, oh man, Way of the World is sure hard to beat. And the title track is awesome. Yeah. And Voices is good. And Writing on the Wall is a song I love. And I don't care what you guys say. I think Need Your Love is amazing. But my favorite song on here is a big, long one. It's a long jam. And it (laughs) it just rocks, man. It's another one. If I'm in my car, I don't care who's in there with me. I'm going to be like, oh, can I just, you know, interrupt you here for nine minutes and 20 seconds as I crank this up? (laughs) Because, man, I love the hell out of the song, Gonna Raise Hell. This is where Aaron and I are so similar <laughs> because I had the same <laughs> choice as he did. Love it's it. weird. It's like it is, uh, certain things we, we see eye to eye on and certain things we don't. But yeah, Gonna Raise Hell is uh, by far my favorite song on this record. And it's just the whole build up to it. And like it's a simple song. There's nothing like super complex about it. But, you know, especially considering it came out in 1979. I mean, it's just got such attitude to it. Yeah. And the riff is great. And uh, Xander's vocals are just amazing on it. He, he gets really mean with his vocals on this song. And uh, for worst, I'm a, it's going to be a clean sweep because I, I hate I Know What I Want. I've never liked that song. And uh, I get that it's one of those things that's like, well, let's give Tom a song to sing to give Robin a break. And and I, But I do agree. It's not really a bad song. I don't think there's really a bad song on this record. I think all of them are good. Yeah. yeah. Um. The title track is great, and it's weird because usually I'm not a, and Aaron will agree with me on this, I'm not a keyboard guy for the most part, especially when the keyboard plays a prominent role in a song, but it works for Dream Police. Yeah. Um, it, it fits really well in that song. It's a great song. Way of the World, God, the melody on that song is incredible. And then um, Voices, I mean, Robin's vocals on Voices is just amazing. But, I mean... I mean, they finished out the decade about as strong as any rock band could have. And, um, but no, I think it, I think this record is, it's one of their, uh, Heaven and Night's my favorite. This probably would be my second favorite as far as an overall record that I'd never skip a song on. So, uh, yeah, I'll go with Gonna Raise Hell and, uh, for best. And I know what I want for worst. Um, but no, gr- great way to end the thing. They didn't go the disco route. So I respect them for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was never going to happen because yeah. uh, they hated disco. Because when they were you know, coming up in the 70s, <laughs> like oh, I talked to one guy who was in bands at the same time and he talked about how the, the DJ, they started, the bars started hiring DJs instead of bands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was taking away their work. And so, yeah, Cheap Trick had a song called Disco Paradise, which they just 
<laughs> I think that they intentionally it was bad and they would do it for a, they would perform it for a long time and I think they were j- intentionally saying to the audience is this the kind of shit you want to listen to really <laughs> well then we're then we're going to give you what you want here here you go here's some <laughs> of that garbage and then they would just kind of torture the audience with it for a while cuz I think they were just making a point like right. you want disco here you go <laughs> you know yeah, well, but so many bands did cave into that that pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Which I mean, I guess it makes sense because that's what was selling at the time. I mean, you even you know, Kiss did it to their detriment because you know they had a big hit out of it, but they lost half their fan base because of it. So, um, but that they could have gone that route. But I mean, so I mean, you know, it's been cool having you on for this, and like the you know, this book kind of covers this period of the band. Is there plans to, you know, to do another book, you know, to continue on the story of the band? Oh, God, I I doubt it. I mean, if the publisher asked me to, and I guess I would give it some thought. I think it would be really difficult mm-hmm. and um, I wouldn't really know where to start. And I, th- I, you know, I was thinking about that. I think the story I tell is the really the interesting story of how did they make it? I think once a band makes it. It gets the story gets in in some ways it gets more boring and predictable, but in other ways it gets a lot more sheltered and nobody's really going to tell you anything anyways. Like it'd be a lot harder to get any behind the scenes information, and you know there's they have much more of a a tighter inner circle. Yeah. So I think bands are actually become less interesting when they become famous and successful. You know. Or at least it's a lot harder to write about them. We're, we're going to have to wait a while for that uh, in-depth breakdown of the making of the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, who wants uh, to it's not incredibly interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, better just stick with the 70s, I think. Uh, but, yeah, but, you know, the album, co- the, uh, the, the book will come out in the fall, but obviously um, – we want to have you back on once the book's publicly released so we can do another plug on it because uh, we just love having you on and it's good to catch up with you again. Yeah. And um, we'll have you on. If you want to do best and worst of the 80s, um, we'd have you back on and we'll plug the book again if you're up for it. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, I, I love Chief Chick in the 80s for the most part. So, wow. But yeah, I, I would love to talk about that. And yeah, it was great to talk to you guys. I had to write a book to actually get on the show, but I'm glad I'm glad it all worked out. Oh, and, don't uh, be like that. <laughs> <laughs> didn't you? But, yeah, wait thank a minute. You so did, much didn't you play Beat the Geek one time? I, oh, you asked me to, I think. Oh, one yeah. Time, but right. I had to work you couldn't or something. Do it. Yeah. You got to come on for one of our uh, live streams on a Friday yeah. and, uh, and do that. But no, I mean, we, no, we love you, BJ. We no, I'm just kidding. I'm here. just kidding. <laughs> We gotta have more guests on here. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> well, it's awesome. Yeah, once again, the book's called "This Band Has No Past." It's available right now for pre-order. Go to Amazon and order it up. You guys know BJ. You love him. He's done his show for so long, rock and or roll. I know everybody'd love to see him back. Is it happening, BJ? Are you coming back, man? Yeah, I keep saying I'm coming back. Um, now that the book's done, I'll get to work on it. I was actually had a plan to work on the podcast today. And then this photographer 
uh, who photographed Cheap Trick in the 70s, sent me about 400 pictures. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> that I ended up spending the whole day pretty much going through. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm working on now is getting the images together for the book. So it kind of never ends. Wow. Let but, me ask you this, and because you're kind of a Cheap Trick expert, and you may not have an answer for this, but there's so many great bands that have had documentaries done on them. Why the hell has Cheap Trick not had a great documentary done on them? Yeah, well... There was a documentary in the works for Amazon about five years ago. And then uh, Ken Adamani told me that they flew out and actually met with him. And then the guy who was making it died. Oh, no. So it kind of that went away. Because that, that was actually happening when I was I talked about that meeting I had with Adamani and Bunny. That documentary was kind of happening then because um, Bunny's manager was also at that meeting. And I overheard him talking to Ken and Bunny about the, that documentary. And that so that went away. But now Bunny told me there's some other documentary in the works. So, yeah, people have been trying to do it. But, well, yeah, with, I agree. I mean, with, I mean, with their story, I mean, the, the, it the, it would make for a great movie. And, like, you know, the I didn't become a Ramones fan until End of the Century came out, that, that documentary. So, uh Cheap Trick, it, it they're tailor-made for a great documentary, and that's kind of all the rage these days. So hopefully that will actually come together. Yeah, it's such a great story of a, you know, of a, of these guys who were in bands since the '60s, and they just worked at it and worked at it and reinvented themselves and just made it happen all on their own terms and just because they were good, and because through a lot of hard work and. You know, they came from the underground and they made it. And yeah, so it's a great story. And also, you know, tons of great visuals. They're a very funny band and everything. So, yeah, there's tons to be done there. So, Heck yeah. And all those things make Cheap Trick one of the greatest bands of all time and most definitely one of the best bands of the 70s. This has been a lot of fun today, guys. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much, guys, for having me on. It's been great.